Letter two of Young Americans Abroad, or Vacation in Europe, Travels in England, France, Holland, Belgium, Prussia, and Switzerland, edited by J. O. Chules, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter two, Adelphi Hotel, Liverpool, April fourteenth. Dear Charlie, it is but twelve days since we parted, and yet we are actually in the old world and the things which we have so often talked over on the rock-bound shore are really before me. Yes, we are on the soil of old England, and are soon to see its glories and greatness, and, I fear, its miseries, for a bird's-eye view has already satisfied me that there is enough of poverty. You know we left New York in a soaking rain, and the wind blowing fresh from the northeast. We all felt disappointed, as we had hoped to pass down the bay, so celebrated for its beauty, with the bright sunshine to cheer our way, but we had to take comfort from the old proverb, that a bad beginning makes a good ending. James, George, and I had made up our minds to a regular time of seasickness, and so we hastened to put our state-room into order, and have all our conveniences fixed for the voyage. As soon as we had made matters comfortable, we returned to the deck, and found a most formidable crowd. Every passenger seemed to have, on the occasion, a troop of friends, and all parts of the immense steamer were thronged. The warning voice of all on shore soon caused a secession, and at twelve o'clock we had a great agent at work by which we hoped to make headway against wind and wave. The cheering of the crowd upon the wharf was hearty as we dropped into the river, and its return from our passengers was not lacking in spirit. The Arctic, you know, is one of the Collins lines of steamers, and I was not a little surprised at her vast size and splendid accommodations, because I had only seen the Cunard boats in Boston, which are very inferior, in size and comfort, to this palace and tower of the ocean. We all anticipated a hard time of it, from the severe storm which raged all the morning, and I, in common with all the passengers, was delighted to find it anything but rough water outside the hook. We kept steaming away until we lost sight of land with the loss of daylight, and yet the sea was in less commotion than it frequently exhibits in Newport Harbor. The next morning, at breakfast, we had quite a fair representation at table, and I think that more than two-thirds presented themselves for duty. We boys were all on hand, and passed for able-bodied men. The routine of life on board was as follows. We breakfasted at eight, lunched at twelve, dined at four, took tea at half-past six, and from nine till eleven gentlemen had any article for supper they saw fit to order. This is quite enough of time for taking care of the outer man, and any one careful of his health will be sure to intermit one or two of these seasons. All the meals were excellent, and the supplies liberal. The tables present a similar appearance to those of a first-class hotel. In regard to our passengers, I think I can say, with confidence, that a more agreeable set of persons could not well have been gathered together. It really was a nicely assorted cargo. We numbered one hundred and thirty, and all the various parts of our country were all represented. Philadelphia sent the largest delegation. From that city we had more than twenty. I liked the looks of the passengers at the first glance, and every day's intercourse heightened my estimate of their worth and pleasantness. Amongst the company we had a Professor Haddock, of Dartmouth College, going out to Portugal as chargé d'affaires. He was accompanied by his lady and son. Then, too, we had the world-renowned Peter Parley, with his accomplished family circle. Mr. Goodrich, after a long labor for the youth of his country, for whose reading and instruction he has done so much, has been honored by the government of the United States with an appointment as consul at Paris. 
Mr. Goodrich resided there for two or three years, and was in Paris during the Revolution of 1848. He seems fond of the company of young people, and we spent a great deal of time on board with him, listening to his stories, some made up for the occasion, and narrations of the events in February at Paris, and some capital anecdotes about the last war with England, during which he served his country in the army. The Honorable George Wright of California, and her first representative in Congress, was also one of our party, and his glowing descriptions of the auriferous regions kept groups of audience for many of an hour. The Reverend Arthur Cleveland Cox, of Hartford, favorably known as the author of some pleasant rhymes and sonnets, Mr. Cunningham, a southern editor, and several retired sea captains, all contributed to enhance the agreeableness of the voyage. I am sorry to tell you that, three days out, we had a sad occurrence in our little world. Just as we were sitting down to lunch at eight bells, the machinery stopped for a moment, and we were informed that William Irwin, one of the assistant engineers, was crushed to death. He accidentally slipped from his position, and was killed instantaneously. In less than half an hour he was sewed up in canvas, and all hands called to attend his funeral services. The poor fellow was laid upon a plank covered with the American flag, and placed at the wheelhouse. The service was performed by Mr. Cox, in full canonicals, and I can assure you that the white-robed priest, as he issued from the cabin and ascended the wheelhouse, really looked impressively. At the close he was committed to the deep. What food for thought was here? A man in health, and at life's daily task, alive, dead, and buried, all those conditions of his state crowded into thirty minutes. The poor man had a mother who was dependent upon him. Dr. Chules drew up a subscription paper for her benefit, and nearly five hundred dollars were at once raised for her relief. This unhappy event, of course, gave a sad damper to the joyous feelings which existed on board, and which were excited by our fine weather and rapid headway. On Sunday we had two sermons in the cabin to large congregations, all the passengers attending, with the officers and many of the crew. The morning service was by Dr. Chules, and the evening one by Mr. Cox. In the afternoon, April 6th, we had the gratification to see a magnificent iceberg. We were in latitude 43 degrees 4 minutes, longitude 53 degrees 11 minutes at 12 o'clock, and at 3 the ice appeared at about 10 miles distance. The estimated height was about three hundred feet. One of the passengers took a sketch. I also made one, and have laid it aside for your inspection. The berg had much the appearance of the gable end of a large house, and at some little distance there was another, of tower-like aspect, and much resembling a lighthouse. The effect of the sun upon it, as we saw it in various positions, was exceedingly fine. On Monday, the 7th, we saw a much larger one, with several small ones as neighbors. This was probably one mile in length, and about two hundred feet high. We saw several whales frolicking at the distance of a mile, and distinctly saw them spout at short intervals. After having had all reason to hope for a ten-day passage, we were annoyed for four or five days with headwinds, materially retarding our headway. The evenings of the voyage were generally spent on deck, where we had charming concerts. Seldom have I heard better singing than we were favored with by eight or ten ladies and gentlemen. One universal favorite was the beautiful piece, Far, Far at Sea. On Sunday, the 13th, just after morning service, conducted by Mr. Cox, we made Mizzenhead, and obtained a magnificent view of the north coast of Ireland, which was far more beautiful than we had expected. 
The coast is very bold, and the cliffs precipitous, in many places strongly reminding us of the highlands of the Hudson. A more exquisite treat than that which we had enjoyed all the afternoon looking on the Irish coast I can hardly imagine. At night we had a closing service, and Dr. Chules preached. Every one seemed to feel that we had cause for thankfulness that we had been brought in safety across the ocean, and under so many circumstances of enjoyment. We have made acquaintances that are truly valuable, and some of them I hope to cultivate in future life. One of the great advantages of travel, Charles, seems to be that it enables us to compare men of other places than those we live in with our former acquaintances. It brings us into intercourse with those who have had a different training and education than our own, and I think a man or boy must be pretty thoroughly conceited who does not often find out his own inferiority to many with whom he chances to meet. On board our ship are several young men of fine attainments, who, engaged in mechanical business, are going out to obtain improvement and instruction by a careful study of the great exhibition. A number of gentlemen with us are young merchants, who represent houses in our great cities, and go to England and France twice and three times every year. Some of these are thoroughly accomplished men, and wherever they go will reflect credit upon their country. In no country, perhaps, do young men assume important trusts in commercial life at so early a period as in America. I have heard one or two Englishmen on board express their surprise at finding large business operations entrusted to young men of twenty and twenty-one, and yet there are some such with us who are making their second and third trips to Manchester, Leeds, Paisley, and Paris for the selection of goods. I ought to tell you that, on the last day of the voyage, we had a great meeting in the cabin, Mr. Goodrich in the chair, for the purpose of expressing the satisfaction of the passengers with the Arctic, her captain, officers, and engineer. Several good speeches were made, and some resolutions passed. This has become so ordinary an affair at the termination of a passage as to have lost much of its original value, but as this ship had an unusual number of passengers, many of them well known to their fellow countrymen, and as great opposition had been displayed on both sides of the ocean to this line of steamers, it was thought suitable to express our views in relation to this particular ship, and the great undertaking with which she is identified. Every man on board was satisfied that, in safety, these ships are equal to the Cunard line, while in comfort, accommodation, size, and splendor they far surpass their rivals. It really seems strange to us that Americans should think of making the ocean trip in an English steamship, when their own country has a noble experiment in trial, the success of which alone depends upon the patriotism and spirit of her citizens. The English on board are forced to confess that our ship and the line are all that can be asked, and I think that pretty strong prejudices have been conquered by this voyage. Every one left the ship with sentiments of respect to Captain Luce, who, I assure you, we found to be a very kind friend, and we shall all of us be glad to meet him again on ship or shore. On Monday, the 14th, at three o'clock, we took our pilot, and at eight o'clock we anchored off Liverpool, and a dark-looking steam-tug came off to us for the mails, foreign ministers, and bearers of dispatches. As we came under the wing of one of the last-named class of favored individuals, we took our luggage and proceeded straight to the Adelphi Hotel. I ought to say that James was the first to quit the ship and plant his foot on Old England. It was quite strange to see it so light at half-past eight o'clock, although it was a rainy evening. I shall not soon forget the cheerful appearance of the Adelphi, which, in all its provisions for comfort, 
both in the coffee-room and our chambers, struck me more favorably than any hotel I have ever seen. Although our stateroom on board the Arctic was one of the extra size and everything that was nice, yet I long for the conveniences of a bedchamber and a warm bath. I am quite disposed to join with the poor Irishwoman who had made a steerage passage from New York to Liverpool on a packet-ship, and when landed at St. George's Pier, and seated on her trunk, a lady who had also landed, when getting into her carriage, said, "'Well, my good woman, I suppose you are very glad to get out of the ship?' Her reply was, "'And indeed, my lady, every bone in my body cries out feathers.' Yours truly, Weld. End of Letter 2 Read by Sibella Denton all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.